I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. To develop and maintain software, we can have systems that allow us to deploy to production and respond to incidents. Hannah Foxwell, Associate Director at Pivotal, explained the impact these systems can have on the developers and their health. We talked about extreme cases where deployments are done overnight, requiring the engineers to be at the office. Hannah explained how processes can be improved to avoid this and metrics that we can use for guidance. Hannah Foxwell, Associate Director at Pivotal, is joining us today from KubeCon Barcelona. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Today I want to talk about human ops, which is something that I've seen you talk about, and I wanted to start off by explaining what it is. Yeah, sure. So um, HumanOps was a community that was founded by a company called Server Density back in 2016, and it was really aimed at promoting more sustainable practices in IT operations, because, you know, the engineers holding the pager who are getting called out in the middle of the night unnecessarily. There's very real kind of health impacts associated with that. But not only that, it kind of, it also ruins your evenings and weekends. It impacts your relationships. So we wanted to promote better practices for managing on-call. The reason I got involved in HumanOps is because at the time I was running a DevOps consultancy and I was going into these big organizations and I was trying to help them to be more agile and use more automation when building their platforms. And actually the problems that I was coming up against, they weren't technology problems at all. They were human problems. They were issues with how the teams were communicating and collaborating. There was misalignment in the goals of the teams that were supposed to be working together. It was all all very human issues. And so I got involved in the human ops community because of that, because the challenges that I was facing were all human. Just to give some context, you're talking about this originating with... Um people that work on roles that involve them being on call. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the reasons why in software development and operations, why you would need to be on call? I mean, you know, systems love to fail in uh, spectacular ways sometimes. It can be as simple as, you know, your server running out of memory, or it could be that you've introduced bugs into your application software, you know, memory leaks and things like that. Things that are not immediately obvious, that um, will catch you out uh, and cause you to uh, cause things to fall over in um, spectacular ways. You know, we talk about cascading failure, where an issue in one part of the system actually introduces problems kind of downstream and upstream that you wouldn't necessarily have been able to recreate in your pre-production environments. There's so, so many reasons why systems go wrong. It's, it's, it's just one of those things that's to be expected. And there's always this kind of tension between change and stability. So if your system is not changing and it's up and it's running, then there's very little reason why it might go wrong. But that's not the world we live in. We need to be changing our applications. We need to be adding new features and experimenting. We need to be upgrading our platforms um, to the latest version of whatever technology you're using. So change is a reality, which brings along with it um, a kind of necessary amount of instability. Earlier, you mentioned that this being in, in some of these roles and the way on-call is being handled can deal to having health impacts. Can you describe some of the health impacts? 
So yeah, you know, things like high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, these are all linked to things like sleep deprivation and stress. You know, the amount of stress that we kind of accept as normal in our jobs is actually incredibly high. Like there's such a huge kind of epidemic of burnout in our industry because of it. And I think we do need to take it seriously because if our teams are getting burnt out, if our people are stressed and they're suffering from the health impacts that are associated with that then they're not in the best place to drive innovation they're not in the best place to you know to deliver what the business needs you know we need to look after our people and and take that as seriously as we think about like the resiliency of our systems what are examples of the more sustainable practices in you know the operation fields or roles that have on call that you are thinking of or that that are out there So one of the things that makes a big difference is actually making changes during your working day. So in traditional organizations, you probably agree sort of a release window. Um, I know I used to manage a release team where we would have to come in at three in the morning to push our changes to production. I mean, it was kind of fun at the time, but it's not a sustainable way of doing it. And actually, you know, if you read Accelerate, the book by Nicole Forsgren and um, the folks from Dora, there's really compelling evidence now that actually continuous delivery, pushing small changes very frequently is actually correlated to more stability in your system. Instead of batching up changes and deploying all of them like all at once, maybe once a quarter or once every six months, as was the case when I started working in tech, you can't isolate the thing that broke your system very easily if you're pushing six months worth of developer kind of output all in one go and no amount of like functional testing or performance testing in pre-production is going to quite prepare you for pushing that much change simultaneously pushing small amounts of change frequently and doing it during your working day actually makes a huge huge difference i see and earlier you mentioned at some point you had to get to work at 3 a.m to release something what was the reason for that So my team were a sort of release engineering team and we worked on a large e-commerce website. So the reason that we would come in and we would do it at 3 a.m. is because that's when there were not very many customers using the website and we were expecting problems. We would push three months worth of work and this is wow. three months worth of like development work across maybe like five different development teams all getting pushed simultaneously into production. And we had these enormous like plans, these enormous spreadsheets of every single task task that had to be completed to make, do a successful deployment and yeah we've we'd start that process at 3 a.m <laughs> and how long would it take we were usually still going at like 3 p.m the next day so from 3 a.m to 3 p.m it was a long process i mean i probably shouldn't be talking about this because this is how yeah. not to do it but we take like half of our servers out of service we de- deploy like the new version of the website to those servers we test them to see whether they were working we process some like fake customer journeys and things like that and then we do a switch over mm-hmm. and then we'd let real customers use the new code for a while and if there were issues we try and troubleshoot them but we knew you know it was kind of a b deployment we knew we could flip back over to the old version at like at any time and then there was like a, a the point of no return where you had to say okay the new version's good like let's start deploying to the rest of the infrastructure but I that think- took a long time <laughs> i think it is good 
that we talk about it, even if it's the way not to do things because somebody might be listening and it's like, there's another way to do it. And, you know, if they're like doing similar things that we you were doing now, they realize, oh, maybe, yeah, we can get rid of the spreadsheet for like we're <laughs> yeah because exactly. i'm sure there are still companies that are have that process i mean if your deployment process into production takes 12 hours you're not going to do that every day are you you need to do a small amount of change very frequently you need that process to be slick and automated and repeatable also if you have users around the world where there's no 3am because exactly you know. how many of us are like supporting websites that are used like by people all over the world there's no appropriate time to take the website down like, there's always going to be a user impacted yes let's now uh, talk about how one might go about bringing this more sustainable practices around human ops to a company you've been working on that at Pivotal is one of the, th the efforts you're yeah. doing. Yeah, so um, Pivotal's mission as a company is to transform how the world builds software. And my team within Pivotal, our mission statement is a kind of subset of that. So we want to transform how the world builds platforms. Pivotal have a couple of platform products like Pivotal Cloud Foundry has been around for a long time. Pivotal Container Service, PKS, was released last year. And my team are the customer success team that help Pivotal's customers get up and running with those platforms. But we really focus on bringing best practices along with the technology. So we don't turn up and just teach you how to install your new platform. We'll come and we'll teach you how to manage your platform like it's a product, like, you know, agile processes, like actually, you know, prioritizing your backlog, um, creating outcome-oriented roadmaps, taking an MVP approach to your platform and your platform capability. And, you know, in terms of bringing more sustainable working practices, like Pivotal is a massive advocate for XP, pair programming, and creating a sustainable rate of change. Like uh, one of the things that we always say is like, when we bring our methodology to customers, it's not about going fast right now and like pushing for a deadline. It's about teaching you how to go fast forever at a sustainable pace. So my team bring those practices along with them when we start to work with platform teams um, from our customers. You mentioned a couple of components there. One of them was the MVP approach. Can you explain the general idea what this means? Yeah, sure. So in essence, it's about fast feedback. It's not about building the whole thing and then releasing it to your users and then figuring out whether or not it's the right thing. And you know, we've learned this from like a kind of in the application space, You know, we've learned this a long time ago. We need to get an MVP product in front of our users, get feedback and iterate on that because otherwise you're carrying so much risk that you've actually built the wrong thing. Exactly the same process applies to your platform as well. And when we talk about the users of our platform, we usually talk about the development teams who are going to be deploying applications to those platforms. So we want to build a basic platform and we want to get it in front of those development teams. We want them to be deploying their apps to it and then say, actually, what other pain points can we solve for you? What else do you need from this platform? And build a backlog based on the actual user needs, which is actually like, it's actually quite different from how, you know, most organizations used to build platforms and infrastructure. It was very much like a waterfall kind of methodology. We do a massive infrastructure design. Like every IP address was kind of, was allocated before anyone started building it. And then you'd build it 
and then you'd hand it over to some development teams or whoever needed to use that environment. And guess what? It, it didn't work or it wasn't quite what they needed. Or actually, during that space of time that it took to actually design and build and hand over the environment, they understood their, they understood their application a bit better. They built some more features and their needs had changed. The idea that you can build a platform and then it's going to work for your business forever is kind of out of date. You need your platforms to evolve with your business and with the needs of the apps that run on it. And as you described, the main idea is not building the whole thing. And MVP stands for... Minimum viable product, yeah. So that was one of the things you mentioned. Another one was XP and pair programming. Can you explain what this is um xp yeah stands for extreme programming so that's a kind of development methodology and you know one of the key parts of xp that we always evangelize about is pair programming everyone in engineering at pivotal will pair program all day every day you know there'll be two engineers with two screens two keyboards two mouses (laughs) (laughs) each one with a mouse each one with a mouse and yeah it's really encouraging encourages you to work out loud to think through what you're going to do next and we found the quality of code that you write and actually it's it's mainly about quality but also kind of the speed that you are able to write it it's amazing what like two brains can create rather than one it's less easy to get stuck on a problem it's less easy to procrastinate and if you're working together and you know pivotal sort of uh famous for our ping pong tables in the offices but it's genuinely true that it's part of our culture because if you're pairing it's kind of a little bit draining and exhausting to work out loud all day and so they take regular breaks and they go and play some ping pong in the kitchen in pairs yeah. in pairs because <laughs> it's a great game for two people <laughs> yeah. in terms of pair programming and two people working together is there, um, do people have to have the, the same level or can, can a junior engineer be paired with a more senior? What have been your experiences on this? It works. It's an incredibly effective way of training new developers and new engineers. So actually what my team do is we pair with customer platform engineers. And what, the way that it usually works is when we arrive, we're obviously we've got a bit more experience with the technology. We're kind of the experts in the room. And so we don't touch the keyboard. We take on the role of navigator and then the engineer we're teaching is the driver. So we'll explain what we need to do, but we won't actually do it for them. So we'll be sitting in a pair and kind of talking the engineers through what they need to do. And there's a, there's a kind of larger scale version of this that we use quite often called mobbing, which is when we'll have more than two people working on one problem at the same time and you rotate the person who is hands-on keyboard so that actually everybody takes a turn and everyone's learning at the same pace it's a really effective way to share knowledge around the team and you haven't found that it can slow down uh, also development if if you have a person that's constantly like oh why why did you do that and oh can you actually explain is that an issue or not such a big issue? You do need to move at the pace of the slowest person, but that's a short-term problem. Really what you want is you want everybody at the same level with the same experience. And so, you know, after a few days or maybe even a few weeks, if it really is that kind of difference in skill level, you're going to all level up and then you're going to be able to go faster. So it's about starting at the right pace to actually make sure that 
the levels are set correctly with the team and then it will improve over time. Another thing you mentioned was teaching how to go fast with them. Can you explain this? How do you go about teaching or what do you teach in addition to you know, pair programming and MVP? So a lot of the work that we will do is automation work. So we'll be writing code that automates the deployment and upgrade of platforms. That's really the core of what, like, that's the thing that we're delivering. We bring all of these practices with us and that's about how we do it. But what we do is we're building automation essentially. Okay. One of the other things that you've looked at in addition to human ops is psychological safety. What do you mean by this? So psychological safety is a concept that basically a person will not be blamed or punished for speaking up about with ideas or problems or reporting errors. That's me paraphrasing. I can't remember the exact definition, but it's really about creating an environment where it's okay to say, I don't know, or, oh, I've made a mistake. And it's been found that it's a really key factor in team performance, not just in the kind of academic context. Amy Edmondson studied this in a medical context, but also in a tech context. Google did a similar study called Project Aristotle, and that found also that team psychological safety was a key differentiator for the really high performing teams. And the hypothesis is that it's because people are able to talk openly about mistakes and errors they've made. They're able to ask questions without fear of being shut down or humiliated. And as a result, the team have this environment of continuous learning and that drives higher team performance. In what ways can one go about making that change let's say uh, they're in an organization where it's like oh who deployed that and then they just track it down like why did you deploy this or the incident like who was to blame for that incident that we had where our site was down what if people are in that position and they're like i want i wish we would more uh, like this yeah i mean there's a lot of ways that you can help improve the psychological safety in your team one of the things that i've been talking about here at kubecon is actually how some of the site reliability engineering practices developed at Google can help with that. So the concept of having an error budget, which is the small amount of acceptable failure in your system can actually help to set realistic expectations of your team and help us embrace a small amount of failure as normal and as part of our day job. And when we implemented some of these practices within the CloudOps team at Pivotal, it really dramatically improved the team's health and their overall performance. And we now, like, we kind of evangelize about these, these practices, you know, setting service level objectives and having a small amount of error budget. Uh, we use that within Pivotal, but we also teach our customers who are using our platform products about these concepts because, you know, we kind of recognize that failure will happen. I, a platform with any kind of decent level of complexity with a reasonable amount of change being pushed to it will fail in some way at some point. And being accepting that it will fail and being prepared and having an error budget that you can use to measure the amount of failure and you know, in, invest in greater resiliency and reliability if you're not meeting the levels your user needs. Exactly. And you're mentioning that you're taking some of the practices from the site reliability engineering concepts that came from Google. Can you explain what site reliability engineering is? 
Yeah, so Google do a pretty good job running large-scale production systems. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. And SRE, it's a team, but it's also a set of practices that were developed within Google about to about how to do this. So um, SRE is a huge, huge set of practices, technical practices, as well as more kind of human-centric practices like blameless incident reviews and things like that. But the, the way it's kind of um, summed up is it's SRE is what you get if you task a software developer to do the work that was previously operations. So it's about building tools and building automation that removes kind of the human error aspect of operations work. It's about balancing the need for change and the need for reliability and building systems that are ready to run at production scale. So the SRE book, which was published in um, 2016, was really the, the first time that Google had shared their practices around service level objectives, service level indicators, and error budgets. And it's been, it's, these are not things that, you know, you need to be the size of Google to, to benefit from. Any team who is supporting a product in production can benefit from the concept of having an error budget and using that error budget to deploy changes or to measure the amount of kind of failure in the system and make sure that it's make sure that it's reasonable. So as you're mentioning, one of the concepts that came out of this was the error budget and the error rates. And in terms of psychological safety, what is the relationship between that and the error rates? So Amy Edmondson, when she did research in a medical context, found that there was a correlation between higher psychological safety and higher error rates, which is kind of intuitive. If teams are ha- feel safe to speak about their mistakes and their problems, then more will get reported. The interesting thing is that the higher error rates correlated to better patient outcomes, which is counterintuitive. It's like, hold on, the teams that are reporting the most errors are also doing a better job. In this medical context, it's literally a, a difference of like saving lives in that kind of field. So the teams that had higher psychological safety were reporting more errors. That doesn't necessarily mean that they made more mistakes. It's just that they were able to talk about them more openly. The teams with lower psychological safety were probably making the same amount of mistakes, but they didn't feel safe to talk about them and therefore they were unable to learn from those mistakes and therefore you know they weren't performing as highly as a team. In terms of an organization we talked about some best practices that can be adopted that can help with a psychological safety like their budget. Are there any other examples of practices? I also think that measuring toil is a great way to make sure that the work of the team is sustainable. So toil is kind of the manual work that is involved in operations that adds no kind of enduring value. Like maybe in a simple context, maybe you just have to like restart a server or something. You know, these things could be automated. And if if your platform, if your infrastructure needs to scale out, then and the amount of manual intervention, the amount of toil that you have to do to keep it alive, to keep the lights on, will increase. So one of the things that Google do that they, they've written about in the SRE book is they limit the amount of toil type work, the amount of manual work that the engineers do to 50%. So the other 50% of their time is focused on engineering. So automating some of these manual tasks away so that actually in future your toil decreases. And, you know, there's lots of different types of toil, but I always advocate for automating away the toxic toil. So this is the, the manual 
manual stuff there that like we said that will cause your pager to go off in the middle of the night that will disrupt your disrupt your meal times that will cause you to be stressed or to get distracted from the engineering work that you're doing this is the type of toil that you know should be prioritized and and automated away so that the team can actually focus on whatever job they're doing that day, whether that be engineering or other stuff. Can you talk about some of your own experiences in terms of psychological safety? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about that release engineering team that I used to be on. Yeah. <laughs> Because it was really difficult for me at the time. I'm not an engineer. I'm more of a manager. So being the face of the failed deployment is not a fun thing to be and I'm pretty resilient but when it happens again and again and again it's like oh like Hannah's team took the site down and there was always a lot of blame flying around in the aftermath of these events and you know it does take its toll and I, I tried to protect my team as much as possible from it but the concept of a blameless incident review just did not exist in that organization. I compare that to the way we work at Pivotal today and it's night and day. It's a very safe environment at Pivotal. When I did a rotation into the CloudOps team who were based in Dublin, I sat alongside um, one of the engineers who was deploying changes to production all day. We even did we even did a fire drill. We faked an incident and kind of diagnosed it and responded to it. And, you know, the team feel supported by everyone around them and we're deploying like I said we're deploying small changes each time and we're doing it during the day so that actually if you do get stuck and there is a problem you've got all of your colleagues around you who you can pull in and get help that's very different to doing a 12 hour 3am wow. overnight deployment you know yeah I did have to pick up the phone and wake people up during some of those overnight deployments and that doesn't feel great That's hard. Thank God now for the automated uh, voice yeah, exactly. that wakes people. No, I'm kind of joking. Yeah. This is why I love this like area of tech, though. Like we're talking about like better ways to manage the manage change in our systems, but actually, for people working in tech, these technical practices actually make their lives like fundamentally better. It makes it more easy to manage, and that's why I'm pretty passionate about it, and why I've been involved in the DevOps community for a long time. Exactly. Well, Hannah, thank you for. Coming on the show has been great talking to you. Thank you.